Good morning. My name is Sonia, and I'm going to be reading our scripture for us today, Acts 20, 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained through his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful with most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Thank you, Sonia. It was such a gigantic text that we needed a professional. So you've been under the voice of one of the great great school teachers of our area. So thank you very much for doing that. Uh, We've been in the book of Acts. We took some time away during the Advent season, but we've been in the book of Acts. If you're um, just getting familiar with your Bibles, uh, I'm encouraging everyone to 
be bringing your Bibles with you. It's a great opportunity to mark things down. We hand out notes on the other side of your announcement sheet that Pastor Tom was walking you through. So a little bit in the order of the things that we'll be talking about this morning. So we try to make it practical so that you have something to go home with, something to ruminate a little bit more on what the uh, Bible has been leading us into today. But if you're in your Bibles, then Acts is found in the New Testament, so this, the last third of your Bible, and it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right after those four names, you come to the book of Acts. And Acts has been uh, subtitled the Acts of the Apostles, but we could more clearly say that Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That uh, this is the movement of the Spirit of God. Jesus said when he was with his disciples that I need to go. It's better for me to go for you. Because if I go, there will be one who comes who is a comforter. He will dwell inside you. He will live inside of you. And he'll go wherever you go. Jesus, though he is God and creator of all, as he was on this earth, he was in one place at one time. And the Holy Spirit coming to not take his place, but to come in this new era of God's moving amongst his people, would then rest in all of our hearts. So Jesus said, it's better that I go. So the book of Acts written by Dr. Luke is really more an account of the acts of the Holy Spirit. How did God move through the birth of this church or his church to what we even see that it still exists, still thrives today in 2024? What we could say, I guess, is if, we look, if we're looking at Acts, we could say this is what authentic Christianity is supposed to look like. Not because everybody that's contained in these stories is perfect or they get all of their deeds correct, but it's definitely clear that this is what the Lord intended for his church to look, to move, to behave like, to focus on the things that were important to them. And so we've been studying this from the beginning. We now find ourselves in chapter 20, so we've been in it a long time, and we'll be in it for a couple of months more, although we're going to be covering some much bigger sections going forward, like you had read for you today. And so as we've been working our way through, we see that Paul is now the, the subject of the last part of this book. It was other apostles and then the apostle Paul, who was somebody else before, and we'll get to that before we're done here this morning, uh, was rescued and, and restored by the power of the Holy Spirit after his encounter with Jesus. And so he's been giving his life, his years, his energies towards building the church, towards everything that the church needed, everything that the Lord was directing him to do, everything he knew that Jesus had done while he was on this earth. Paul became that ambassador and garnered the respect of so many in the church, including those that were the leaders. And they all knew that Paul was a special individual. Jesus said, guys, don't worry about Paul, because when he was kind of still a threat to them, and they said, I don't really know if we can trust him. He says, don't worry about Paul. I'm going to send him down a path of unique suffering, very intense suffering. Not as a payment for what he had been before, but so that he could be the pillar or the human face, if you will, to the birth of the church. He would go through things that would still continue to be an example that we draw from today. So now Paul, after having spent a few years in this one kind of area here in Ephesus, is giving them a farewell speech. 
He's on a bit of a farewell tour. We had seen last week that he was trying to get to many places to be able to touch, uh, touch in or check in, I should say, with the churches and, and, uh, and, and, and make his way to Jerusalem. He was a Jew still at heart in the sense that he loved the customs and the practices of the Jews. He knew what their completion and fulfillment meant now that he knew Jesus. And he wanted to be amongst his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so he desired to get there. He wanted to be there at Passover, but that opportunity missed him because of the, te- the, uh, the uh, persecutions and things that were coming. So he said, well, I can be there for Pentecost, another special celebration, and now we know what it means. And so he was making his way there. He had his eyes fixed on getting to Jerusalem. But he had this intense burden and care for the churches. His route would be a little bit circuitous. He wouldn't get straight there because he had other things he wanted to do because he loved these people. He wanted to make sure they would be okay. And and more directly, as we teased a little bit last week, he knew this was his time was winding down. He doesn't have a lot longer on this earth or in his freedom to be able to roam amongst these churches. He better get his visits in now. And so what does he do in verse 17? From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This was a time saver, but it was also an important opportunity. He had now several days it would take them to journey. He had time to kind of wrap his head around, what are the things I'm going to say to them? Think about when you're saying goodbye, if you know you're saying goodbye, you're going to come up with the things that count, right? You're going you're gonna to think about what do they really need to hear from me? What a waste it is sometimes when we see people that don't use that time or that awareness of that acknowledgement to breathe life into or legacy into those that they're leaving behind. Or they use that time in bitterness and revenge and and, and try to like fight some final battles or something. Paul says, no, I don't have a lot of time here. I'm going to bring the leaders of the church together. I'm going to impart to them the things that I really want them to know. So he sends for them. He's got time to think about what he's going to say to them. He's using several terms here in his address with them. First off, he sends for the elders, but he also uses the word like overseers. He uses shepherds. All of those words basically mean the same thing. It still is an official office. People that were called to fulfill an office of leadership in the church. And there's some nuance as to what each word seems to emphasize, but ultimately there's a lot of overlap. For the elders, we're calling them elders, he's focusing on their maturity, where this word presbyter, that might ring a bell to those of us that know what other church denominations look and sound like. You might think Presbyterian, and they're going to be elder-led or elder-ruled in that sense, so that's where they get that name from. He reaches out to them as overseers. He's reminding them, you have a charge to oversee the flock. And an overseer, that word is episkopos. Now that's starting to sound like episcopal. You've heard of Episcopal church. Another word for that is bishop. So when you see someone who's a bishop in an Episcopal church, you go, oh, that's an overseer. It's an official office in that sense. And then, of course, we've been talking a lot since the book of John about the role of shepherds. He says, oversee your flock. And so when he says flock, he's saying you are shepherds. You have that responsibility as well. That's where we get our word pastor from. You are to feed and protect the sheep. 
And there's such an emphasis on a high calling of eldership. There's a reason why he's pulling those uh, folks together to bring them in, to give them the final charge, because they have a unique and heavy weight of responsibility on their shoulders. If you look out over any local assembly of Bible-believing Christians who have come together and placed their submission and their trust in a leadership of a church, it is a heavy responsibility, one that is never to be taken lightly. And there's qualifications. You look in 1 Timothy 3, Paul spent specific time to get very detailed on the qualifications of the people that you should allow to be the leaders in the church. And so there's a heavy weight of character and there's an expectation of conduct as an example that we're to follow. There's something interesting, though, in about the fact that he is giving this kind of rally speech or this timeout speech to these official leaders of the church. Several have pointed out that, or many I should say have pointed out, that this is the only speech that Paul gives to an exclusive group of Christians in the book of Acts. We know that Paul teaches the church and he speaks to the Christian church, but that's all in his letters. In his speech in Acts, he's saying, this is my only huddle with people who get it, who have the same burden and responsibility, who hear my voice, who have the spirit of God living within them already. So the things that I say that are truth will matter and, and will permeate their souls deeper. So because of that, and this is a bit of a, of an an intentional plan on my part with our text. Rather than me just giving our elders a talk out of what Paul says and you guys just kind of listening in, I think we can make the broader application that to all the saints who make up the church, that there's application for us to grab from this. It isn't just to, well, this stuff matters only to the leaders. It does matter to the leaders, but mostly from a standpoint of responsibility the weight and the burden of responsibility. But it seems to me when I see the qualifications of an elder, I don't see where the Lord ever lets people who are not elders in the church off the hook that they shouldn't strive for those same qualities. In other words, it doesn't ever say elders should be this and that and this and that and this and that. The rest of you, since you don't have that office, dad, don't worry about it. There's, there's an expectation to lead by example that we all follow. And so I think the words that Paul shares with his leadership, especially those in Ephesus, are important for us to adapt and apply. So I'm going to do my best to help us do that this morning. So what I want to do is to take a look at the example of Paul as he recounts his efforts for the church. He's going to start in a place of review. And if we're not careful, we're going to hear the words of Paul as a bit of a self-boasting Almost like he is doing that farewell tour. You might remember, I kind of warned about that last week where I said, you know, when we hear of people that say, I'm retiring and they announce it ahead of time, it's because they want to be able to go to the cities if they're a rock band and they're going to go on their farewell tour. They want everyone to come out in droves, buy more tickets and get celebrated on their way out or a sports athlete or something. Every city they visit now is going to give them a gift or put their jersey in the rafter or something like that. There's some usual angle that allows us to feel like I'm going to be ushered out in glory. I don't think this is Paul's desire. And we have to be mindful of that because when he gives an honest account of the good that he's done, to us, we could sound like, I don't think I'd be comfortable saying that. 
even if I looked back and said, hey, I did do a couple of great things, I think I'd be a little embarrassed, and Paul should be too, to share these things. But remember, he's had time to think about this, and there's a point to sharing this with these men so that they'll know what they are to do next, and I think, therefore, we can know as well. So what I'm going to call us to here this morning as the first point is to not be resistant towards reviewing your own history. I know that this is uncomfortable. Anytime we we decide to look backwards, what usually fills that space? Regret, shame, mistake. Most of us are not geared. There are some, there are few amongst us, and we're usually leery of these people that look back and only see their highlight reel. And think way too highly of themselves. As I look back, I just see all the greatness that I've accomplished and everything. But for the most part, because I know most of you, I think most of us look back and be like, I don't know if I'm really comfortable looking back at who I've been throughout my history. So that's why I'm calling us to not be resistant to being willing to do this. And there's some reasons why. So let's look at how Paul does it first and foremost. He examines his motive and he's sharing it with these folks. In verse 19, he said, I was about serving the Lord. Pretty obvious, right? It's right on the, on the bottom shelf. We can all grab that. But think about what this means as a motivation. I've shared with you before. One of my favorite verses comes out of 2 Corinthians 5, which says, I've made it my ambition. I love that word ambition as Paul uses it to be pleasing to him. In other words, that I would desire so much to make his glory my goal, that that's what I'm shooting on every time. That's what I'm aiming on. That's what I'm fixated on. And and while that might sound like a lofty thing, what we have to understand is how practical that is. When you and I make the glory of God the biggest thing that we're aiming for, all lesser attempts and failures and shortcomings and all that sort of stuff, they count for something. I want to just kind of illustrate it this way, I guess, really quickly. Um, uh, this is, oh, I shouldn't do this. This is going to make Jeff Dion so happy this morning. I'm going to use a soccer analogy. Jeff, if you start saying amen out loud, I, oh, Elijah too. No, this is going to start a movement. Um, soccer is a gigantic net. I don't know if you've ever been on a soccer field, but anytime I'm very rarely ever, but I go down and I go, they just don't score enough for me. It's the most boring sport in the world. Anyway, um, Said my piece. I can't give you all a full run. Um, uh, So when you're down there on the field, though, the net is gigantic. And you're thinking to yourself, how do they not score more often? This thing is so huge. The ball is this big. Get it in the net already. And all of you fans, I'm going to throw hockey guys into this too here. All of you fans, this is what you do the whole game. You're like, oh, 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 oh. It's a game of almost, almost scored. All right. Anyway, this is not in my notes. I was not planning to illustrate this. I'm going to kill all my time. So, um, uh, so you, you, you see this gigantic net, small ball, and you think, why don't they score more? But if you think about the game, it's not as easy as it seems, right? They don't get to use these hands other than the goalie. And he's really not there to primarily score. Um, and so you've got to use your feet and other people are using their feet, fast moving, fast paced, getting in the way, all those sorts of things all prevent you from being able to have a high scoring game. I'm going to jump this analogy now to us living our lives for the glory of God. If we're aiming on the gigantic net of pleasing God, this is how gracious he is to us. 
that there's so many little things, there's so many um, easy things that make uh, put a smile on God's face that we can offer to him. And, and, and we're shooting all the time, but we're fumbling over our feet. We're just kind of, I can't always get it in there. And, if, and we look back in history and say, I don't score enough for God. I'm shooting, but I'm not scoring enough. The point I'm trying to make here is that what God grades us on or what God scores is the attempt of the shot. But there's all sorts of factors why we're not scoring. There is an active goalie in the way. We could say that's Satan himself who's blocking many of our attempts to score. There's the fact that I've got to use my fumbling feet and I can't use my hands so my flesh is at a disadvantage. Does that ring a bell in all of our teaching? And then I've got these opposing teammate, uh, uh, other, the other team. I've got people on the sides cheering against me, yelling at me, all that noise of the world and everything. It's very, very difficult for us to score uh, in, in the sense of what it really counts for God, except for the fact that that's not what he grades us on. He doesn't look at the scoreboard and say, oh, you only got one shot in. It's not going to count for me. It's not going to cut it. He wants us to keep firing, keep shooting. He says, your aim is what I care about, not your end result. Paul was able to look back at his motive. He was able to say, guys, listen, with a clear conscience, I can say my ambition was to shoot on that net every time I could. You happy, Jeff? All right, can I move on now? All right. So Paul's examining his motive. He's examining his manner. He says that with all integrity... With all humility, with all tears, trials, I lived among you. Paul made himself available to be seen, to be transparent, to live a life of integrity amongst those people, rather than just being a distant guy that every once in a while sent a brilliant letter and said, go and do. He says, you know how I lived with you. I was there. I was present. I was, I was humble with you. And many of us would say, well, the fact that you know that disqualifies the fact that you were humble. But really, Paul knew what he could have been and what he was before. So he said, I've been trying to just lay my soul bare before you. And I wept with you. And I went through all kinds of trials and, and, uh, and, and pressures and testings from the outside forces and from religious leaders. I went through all those things so that I could live amongst you that my example would be there before you. And he said, I I wanted to know nothing in this life except Jesus and him crucified. That's what mattered to him. So he went about, his manner was going about it this way. And then he says in verse 24, he says, the message that I shared with you was the gospel of grace. Wasn't a gospel of judgment, wasn't a gospel of, of um, self-righteousness or anything. It was a gospel of grace that no matter who you are and what you've done, God forgives and restores you to his glory. And he says, and I taught with you in verse 27, I taught you the whole counsel of God. And I went deep with you and I, I gave you those, those um, truths that you needed to know so that you'd be fully equipped, that you'd be prepared for whatever lies ahead. So you see how Paul is willing to look back. Now, I'm just going to indicate here. We'll look at it here in a second. He doesn't look all the way back, does he? He looks back over who he's been in Christ. And he says, this is 
what I'm offering to you. This is what I'm reminding you of. There's some indication here that Paul's uh, reputation was taking a hit from all the accusers and everything. So if he goes, this is part of the reason why it sounds like he's got to be a little self-braggy. If he goes, those leaders' faith starts getting shaky because they're going to hear the the rumors. And they're going to be tempted to believe those rumors. This is what happens to us. It's human nature. He says, I'm reminding you what you're about to hear is not true. It doesn't stick. You know me. So walk in faithfulness, knowing that the same God who built me and made me available to you is the one who holds you together. So he's able to look back with a sense of accomplishment, with a clear conscience, in a sense of victory to be able to share this with them. This is an incredible feeling, you know, to be able to look back and say, okay, this counted I share with you examples out of my relationship with Vernon Miller, who many of you, or some of you, I should say, would would know. I know that we've got a lot of new faces, but for years and years, one of the pillars of our church and our community here in Waterville was a man named Vernon Miller, who my family and I brought up from Boston and uh, did not have any biological children. So we said, well, we need a biological or we need a spiritual dad. So took him in and he was a part of our life and our family but before he came with us he had a wife and they were in a small one uh, one bedroom apartment in Boston and when she passed she had a lot of ailments and things a lot of things that most uh, spouses would look at as a hindrance and a burden because many of you that knew Vernon knew he wanted to be with God's people he wanted to be in church every meeting that happened he wanted to be down with the people in the city and stuff he was just really fed off of that kind of thing but he put his wife as his priority in his life and so while she was sickly and needing of him he was with her most of the time and would find his way into church circles and do those sorts of things as he was confident she could be without him and so uh, when she passed, I remember I was with him in his apartment that night and they hadn't yet, um, removed her from the apartment. And I remember he was, uh, just, it was sinking into him because they'd been together, I think maybe 26 years or something like that, 27 years. It was sinking into him that he had crossed a finish line. Now he, he missed his wife terribly. And those of you that knew he couldn't stop bragging about her and stuff and the marriage they had. So this isn't a statement of, not loving her, but there was an accomplishment factor when he realized he had endured all of the difficulty and the testing that came with her physical condition. And he just looked up at the ceiling. He says, I praise you, God. I never complained once time, one time. He goes, I, it was, it was like a burden was lifted off of him. He said, I actually did it. I set out to never complain to the Lord or to anybody else that she was some kind of burden to him. And when he realized he no longer had to keep that goal because it was finished, he was relieved and he was restored. And he got to look back at that track record and say, I give that to you, Lord. You are faithful to me to allow that. Paul is able to look back at his efforts and especially those last few years with this Ephesus church and feel satisfied that his motive and his conduct and his words glorified God. Where does he get this from? Well, Jesus is the fuel to Paul's ministry, clearly. He says in Philippians 3 that he wanted to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, Paul's prayer was clearly answered. And remember, we we talked about this a little bit last week, that Luke, as he's writing this, 
is giving us a parallel account. The mindset and the ministry and, and the approach and the attack of Jesus is what Paul adopted for himself. Luke doesn't come out and say, I'm about to re, uh, reveal to you all that Paul was doing and why he was following this pattern. But it's clear as you look at this that he's following the same pattern that Jesus gave him. We don't have to look any further to see that Jesus' motive was to please the Father, that he was aiming on that net or that goal of pleasing the Father. And we say, well, he was God, but he still shared that as his motive. I only do what, the, what pleases the Father, he said in John 8. How did he do it? What was his manner of doing it? We looked at Paul's manner. What was Jesus' manner? We know that it was sinless perfection. First John 3 tells us that in him there was no sin. I remember being a kid and my aunt and uncle were the first to kind of introduce us to the new church that they were getting saved in in Auburn. And my parents were over there and we were starting to have like these Bible studies. None of us knew what we were doing. It was all brand new and fresh. And I just remember being this young, impressionable kid and my uncle who's, uh, I just love him and he's just a, a great artist and a musician and all this stuff. But he's got this exuberance to him. His, everything is just fascinating to him. And, uh, and I remember him in his youth just kind of being like when he stumbled across in the text that for 33 years, Jesus never sinned. And I remember him saying, can you believe it? 33 years and never sinned. And we were all thinking, and of course, I was a kid. I was like, I can go that long, you know. <laughs> How about 33 seconds? Anybody got that track record? This is sinless perfection. This is how Jesus lived. You say, well, what was his message? We know Paul's message was a gospel of grace. What message did he get from Jesus? We know Jesus was the very word of God in John 1. So what was his message? Well, at one point in the scriptures in Luke 4, he comes up to speak in the temple and he takes a text from Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, to tell them, this is what I've come to do. This is my message for you. I'm borrowing from Isaiah because I'm the very word of God. So what Isaiah was saying hundreds of years before was pointing towards me. So he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we know that Jesus is the gospel of grace. That was his message. Now I need to move on quickly. We've spent so much time wasting it on soccer that I need to make some tracks here. We're going to follow this pattern. We look at Paul as he looks at his own life. We see where he got that from in Jesus and then we apply it to us. How do we review our own track record, our own ministry? What were our motives? What have our motives been? What has been our manner and our conduct? What has been the message that others would say, oh yeah, as I hear them talk, this is what I hear from them the most. And you say, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not comfortable looking backwards that way. I am full of regret. Isn't it interesting that the world is telling us that everything that we should be about is not having any regrets? They tell us as though somehow it's possible that we can do whatever we want and not think about it the next day. They tell us as though somehow there's this magic button that we can push every morning, just erase who we were before because you're going to live with no regrets. And I don't know. I haven't figured out how to do that. I try pretty hard to do that. I don't, it doesn't seem to work. 
Is guilt always a bad thing? Is regret something that we're supposed to always be without? Maybe to some extent, but let me see if I can clarify. Uh, Way back, probably in the late 90s, I read a book by a guy named Philip Yancey named Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. And it was a very different kind of Christian book. And it was a little bit ominous and a little spooky to begin with and things. But eventually him and his co-writer, Dr. Paul Brand, got to the point of what this whole title was about, Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. Dr. Brand was a lifelong missionary. I think he grew up in India with his family and eventually became a doctor and said, I'm going to go back to treat leprosy in India. And along his journeys, he discovered some very fascinating things about leprosy that people misunderstood. And he changed his approach and his uh, uh, assisting of them and all those kinds of things. But one little takeaway, although it was profound in its discovery, was the fact that the flesh itself was not the most unhealthy part. It had become unhealthy because of its of, of its uh, source. But the flesh itself wasn't the thing that needed to be solved. It was the fact that the blood wasn't getting to the nerve endings and the nerve endings were causing a desensitization. And uh, people, especially uh, as they were numb and couldn't feel the things that were happening to them, were having all kinds of disastrous effects on their bodies. You know, you think about the fact if you don't, if your eyes don't feel dry, you know, which is what comes to us automatically to blink, if you don't feel that, You're not going to do the thing to take care of that. And it was causing things like blindness. Uh, People were losing limbs and all that sort of thing because they didn't have the emergency system, the alarm bell of pain to say, you got to address something. Keep this in mind as you hear the world's mantra of live with no regrets. Don't feel bad about never, never look back. Don't carry the burden of all those sorts of things. There's, there's hope for that. And it doesn't need to ruin us. But if we ignore that it exists, are we ignoring this warning system saying something needs to change or you don't need to go back to what you experienced or felt before? This is Payne's gift to us is that it gives us a warning system. If your hand is on the stove, your alert, your alert isn't like a Nacho Libre said, I smell cookies. That's not your alert. You feel it and you pull away before the cookie smell sets in. Without remorse, nothing is healed. Remorse and guilt is a gateway to the Lord doing what he can do. Let's not forget that Paul had two histories. As I said before, he could have gone all the way back and he wouldn't have had such a glowing report of his track record. He tells us this in 1 Timothy 1. He's talking to his apprentice, Timothy. He says, I want you to know some things. I want you to be aware of some things. And he sounds a little bit like he's going into bragging mode here in chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Oh, here goes Paul again. I'm good at this. I'm tenacious. You can count on me. He says, no, he he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formally, in other words, though we had no reason, though formally I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Later on in verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who of whom I am the foremost. 
So it's not an overinflated ego that Paul is carrying around when he says, God counted me faithful, I've been able to do this well, those kinds of things. He's very aware of who he used to be before Christ came into his life, before grace came and rescued his heart. Because grace resets our history and it lessens, doesn't eradicate or remove in this life, but it lessens the consequences that we feel. If I'm out there robbing banks and Jesus gets a hold of my heart and I say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and he does, doesn't mean that the lights aren't coming and the cuffs aren't expecting and everything. And I can't say, hey, you don't need to arrest me because Jesus just forgave me. There's some consequences I'm going to experience. But if Jesus has really rescued my heart, I'm not going to uh, get out of jail later on and go rob more banks. Some of the consequences will be lessened in my life because I'm not digging my own hole deeper. And he also allows me to look back on my track record with something bigger than just regret and shame. Looking back is rewarding when you see how much grace has covered. We look back and we say, well, his hand has been at work. All I've ever done is look back and see what I've destroyed. But now I'm seeing what his hand is rebuilding. So point number two, as we try to, again, move a little bit quicker, is to not be reluctant in rebuilding our history. Somebody said it's better to sleep on what you plan to do than be kept awake by what you've done. Paul had plans for the future. Paul had plans for now. He was obsessed with what's next. What's his responsibility? What's his opportunity? And so as he looked back, he wasn't kept awake by what he had done. He knew God took care of that. He solved that. He forgave that. But he's given me something to do now. The gospel is, yes, for our histories. The gospel takes care of the back then. In forgiveness, he wipes the slate clean. But it doesn't just, it's not just a historical gift to us. It's a current gift to us. I saw in Paul Tripp's um, uh, um, devotional this week, New Morning Mercies, maybe some of you use it. He said that there's a nowism to the gospel. That God is at work in us now. Not just back then. Thank God for that. But he's doing something now. This is what Paul says as he takes a, a ministry. Um, uh, he, he shares with them, this is what I'm doing, what I have been doing. This is my, my focus for how I've been living. Think about how countercultural the view of life that Paul is going to have when he says this. Let's go back to verse 24. He says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Now think about that phrase before. I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Would that be a, a big hit on Instagram? Uh, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. There's this, I'm highlighting and revisiting this little paragraph or this half a paragraph here because it's so pregnant with, with um, a, a revelation of how Paul lived his life. It's such a biological, uh, a, a biographical um, account for us that we could stop and examine this for weeks on end. He says, I, I'm an accountant before the Lord. My life has no value or isn't precious to me. 
He's, he's, he's reckoned it is the accounting term. You check it off in the check registry or something. You're reconciling or you're reckoning it. He says, I, I, I've valued my life of no worth. Oh, Paul's a real poor self-image. No, he has such a high Christ image that he knows that anything of value in him is, is him. He says, I'm a runner. I'm, I'm thankful that I was finishing my course. Paul uses sports analogy and other aspects of some of his writing. He sees it as one of the great aspects of helping us know this is how we do this faithfully as we see it like a race that needs to be won. It needs to be uh, faithfully endured. He says, I finished my course. He sees himself as a steward of this life. He says, this ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. You think about what would change in our life if we started thinking about well, what I have was a gift. What I have now, I'm a manager, manager of. I'm not the owner of these things. He says, I'm a witness. I was here to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. I'm a herald. I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is anywhere where Jesus rules and reigns. He says, that was my mission is to proclaim that. I love this last aspect that he's a watchman. Because he says, I can tell you I'm innocent of, of the blood of all. What he's saying is, I felt a responsibility to everybody that was under my jurisdiction or under my area of influence to be this kind of person, to be faithful to this, to proclaim the message of the gospel of grace so that nobody can say, that guy didn't tell me. That guy didn't minister to me. That guy didn't leave me a good example. He said, no, I'm innocent of the blood of all, not around the entire world. Although we could argue that Paul's writings would carry on to be the, the shaping of the church for the entire world. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of all. He felt their full responsibility. Again, where does he get this from? Well, let's follow our pattern. Jesus is Paul's ministry perfection. Paul said in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was an accountant. He said, there's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. He says, this is the value of my life here is to lay my life down for my friends. That's why I'm walking on this earth. He was a runner. The scripture tells us that because of the joy that was, <clears throat> excuse me, set before him, he endured the cross. He had a finish line in mind. He saw an end and a completion time that he held on to. He was a steward of the ministry that the father had given him. He says, I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do his. We saw that in his agonizing prayer in the garden. Of course, we know he was a witness. He even told, uh, he told the, uh, the Jews in, in John that Moses and the prophets, they testify of me. I'm a witness to God's redemption and his plan in me. As Pastor Tom said, every page of the scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was a herald. He said, I'm here to proclaim the kingdom, uh, the, pro proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we know Jesus as a shepherd being that watchman. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, it goes in and goes out through me, will be saved, will be protected, will be fed, will be restored. 
So we see the pattern. Paul was faithful in these things. He was fueled, energized, motivated, transformed, and changed by Jesus, who was all of those things. And he is all of those things for you and I. What do we do about this? It's such an incredible list. We think about being an accountant, a runner, a steward, all these things, and we say, okay, so you're asking me to go out and basically be perfect. That's what I got to start with at um, 11 o'clock today. It'd be all of these things. I, I would encourage you to pick a thing. What is the thing from that list that as I was reading through it that might have challenged you the most? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Okay, that thing right there, that aspect of who Jesus is, that's where he wants to be more present in your life. He wants to make you stronger in this area. If you say, well, I don't know if I've been a great accountant. I look at my life based on what I can feed it, what I can produce from it. It's, it's, it's value to me. I don't necessarily see my life as that which belongs to the Lord. Or maybe when we talk about Jesus going to the finish line, Paul going to the finish line, you say, I have an endurance issue. I start off strong. My Mondays and Tuesdays are great for Jesus, but by the time I get to Sundays, man, I need church. I have gone way off the rails. I have lost the sound of his voice. I haven't seen his light on my footsteps. I don't know. I just kind of wane off a little bit. Maybe you're not uh, quite the steward that God has prepared for you to be. Do you see that this life, this ministry, the things that God has given to you to, to be in him is a gift from him? It's your responsibility to be alert to that. Maybe you ask yourself, how does your life point to Jesus? How are you witnessing to the, the gospel of grace? How are you proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God by how you live and what you say? Pastor Tom, in the announcements earlier, boy, you're getting a lot of runtime today, Pastor Tom. Between soccer and your announcements, I'm covering a lot of ground. But I just want to underscore what he was throwing out there about this idea of training for evangelism. Churches all the time do evangelism training. And um, it is uh, of primary importance. But what churches often find is about 10, 15, 20 people are like, hey, I need that. Or I feel called to tell someone about Jesus, so I want the tools and I want the methods and all that kind of stuff. We are taking this up as an endeavor, not because we have to check a box off and say our church provides evangelism training. If you're not sure what we were even talking about, we're really talking about being able to tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done. We often think about the person, the weird person on the street corner who's totally comfortable to make a fool of themselves. Most of us are a little more reserved than that, or we don't want to be that pushy friend or cousin or nephew or uncle or anything like that. We don't want to be those types of people that are always around, never getting invited to the parties because we always talk about Jesus. We're taking up this endeavor because we saw in the presentation that we received where we were is a way to be able to process the gospel in our lives. And what happens naturally, or maybe supernaturally, what happens is as we process the gospel in our life and we see our own story in there and what Jesus has done, it kind of just pours out of us. And the thing that we see the most going on with what we want to teach, it's a thing, I think it's titled Three Circles. I'm not even sure if that's what it's titled. But uh, by the use of just sort of this visual and simple little diagram is people just go, that's what the gospel is. 
That's what I felt back when I was drawn to, say, going to church or picking up my Bible. So this is what God was doing. This is the reason why it wasn't working before. All my religious attempts or my, my vain attempts to get clean and sober, any of those kinds of things. We saw the gospel and how it penetrates and transforms us coming to life. So I'm going to encourage you, rather than just leaving it up to the 10 or 20 that you would think are going to go out into the city for a couple hours a week or something to think about this from a standpoint of when I'm in my workspace or when I'm with my family or when I'm raising my kids, how do I proclaim the truth of the gospel simply and effectively, not convoluted and crazy? It'll be our emphasis for this year at faith, actually. I have a, an image for us to see that this idea of faith at work is hopefully going to overarch everything that we talk about, everything that we teach and proclaim this year, because worship doesn't stop on Sunday. And so with a goal of becoming more practical in the fact of your life at church has lived a few hours a week, but your life in the other places that your responsibilities take you and your callings take you and stuff is something that we don't always think, how does my church instruction in my church change follow me into the job site or follow me into my kitchen or follow me into the classroom or any of these places that we go? So faith is praying towards and preparing for being able to um, bring our church along on this journey more together. So through messages and more direct application to these kinds of things, we'll be studying the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord willing, when we're done with um, Acts. And so if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, it talks about how all things in life count for God and his glory. As Pastor Tom had mentioned too, the uh, discipleship growth track will have uh, breakouts per- perhaps and opportunities to learn more about these things. Our small groups will be geared towards thinking and, and applying through these things. We have some aspects of this that we want to add to Sunday mornings, all to help us get our faith where we work, where we live. Whether you're employed with a paycheck or you work at home or whether or not you're raising kids or you're teaching kids or any of the things that we do, that our faith goes to work with us. And it all counts for God's glory not just the stuff we do on Sunday. I believe a church that is raised biblically and led spiritually will glorify God faithfully, so that will be our aim. Can I make one more point in five minutes? Thank you very much. Not hearing any objections. Number three, don't be relaxed about preparing for the future. You see how Paul has done this? He looked back, he covers the current, and he says, here's what's coming. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's assessment of the future is there's going to be dangers around you. There's going to be wolves. We know those are the the attacks and the antagonism from outside coming in. He says that they're going to happen amongst you, that some of your own will end up 
uh, walking away. It's famously covered in Third John about a man named Diatrophes, or Diotrephes, who is uh, quoted as someone who likes to put himself first, and he was leading people astray in the church. So even immediately, Paul's predictions were coming true, but we've been seeing it through the centuries, right? For whatever reason, some people get this weird thing of, I want a following. So they come up with some truth, and they twist it, and they lead people astray with it. Paul says that's going to happen. It's going to keep happening. But he also seems to put a greater emphasis on the dangers within us. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Then he goes on to share an example in verse 33. He says, like me, I didn't covet anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Remember that these hands ministered to my own needs. Paul was a tent maker. He had a profession. And even though the churches would have gladly supported him at that time, he said, it's more wise for me with all the scrutiny on me and all the attacks on my character. It's better for me to earn my own way. So that's one last arrow that they can shoot at me. So he was happy to go to work and earn his way. And he says, you know that these hands ministered to my own needs. There was a reason for that. And he says, and what you need to do is to protect your heart. Jesus spoke about money more than almost any other subject. And so Paul, knowing this, said, help the weak, focus and emphasize giving over receiving. All of these things, Paul is saying, this uh, goes to the inner you. If you offer these things up, you are addressing the threat from within. Where did he get this pattern from? Okay, we get it, Brent. You're going to Jesus. Jesus protects our future. We know that his earthly ministry foreshadowed what he's going to be for us on the throne. Jesus still sits on the throne. You and I still struggle with things. And he says, this is what I'm here to help you accomplish. This is what I do through you. If there were dangers around Jesus, like the Pharisees, we saw how he treated them. He had a very different reaction for those who were attacking the character and the truth of God than those who were poor and weak and needy and maybe misguided. He went after those as, as wolves. For those that were amongst them, he made it extremely uncomfortable for them to stay like Judas. Judas eventually would have to be exposed for the plan of God to advance and go forward. And so Jesus even gets close to him and draws it out of him, addresses him and even sends him off to go betray him. Jesus made it uncomfortable for Judas to stay. And when it comes to this problem of within us, well, we don't need to look any further than the cross. He paid for our sin. And because of his resurrection, he's made us new creations in Christ. This is why Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what's going on within us. He didn't carry sin himself, but he carried it upon himself for you and for me. And he solved that. He fixed that. He eradicated it. And he did it in such a way that he understands the trials and the testings and the temptations that we go through. This is who he is for us when we battle those things that are within us. So how do we prepare for the future? How do we heed Paul's warning, knowing that Christ has done it all? Well, for the threats around us, we need to detach our affections from the world all the things that go against the will of God and the truth of God that we cozy up to, that we warm up to, that we appreciate and allow in. We just don't hang out in wolves' dens anymore. 
Maybe for the problems that are amongst us, the ones that are close to us, who have an air of truth about them, but a little bit of deceit as well. And what do we do? Well, for us, the only thing we can do is live lives of sincerity. We live lives out in the open, not covering up who we are. We live openly before others so that the Judases of the world become uncomfortable in our presence. They don't stay long. What do we do for the problem within us? Well, we keep giving our heart to Christ. Uh, three little R's that I thought of this week that are boring and repetitive, but hopefully helpful for us. The first is that we need to regularly repent of sin. Be willing to keep short accounts of your sin track record or your failings or your misgivings. I was talking to somebody earlier who said, you know, something a couple days ago or something like that. I was like, but it's new today, isn't it? Like two days ago was a long time ago in the Lord's eyes. We keep short records of our sin. We repent regularly. We say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be guilty of this. I don't want to be doing this. I don't, want to be, I don't want this to be true of me anymore, so I give this to you. And then the second thing that we do with that, though, is that we rely on grace. We look to the cross and we say, I don't feel far removed from who I am or what I've done, but I know that in truth, your grace from the cross of Jesus Christ is new for me every morning. And I rely on that grace. So I repent, I rely, and then I learn to replace these behaviors and habits. Lord, give me the new thing. Give me the thing that pushes the old out. We need to be, able, we need to be brave enough, trusting in the Lord enough to be able to look backwards from time to time. Review our past efforts, but strive for what is better for the now and what is our protection for the future? You and I are not left to our own power. We have Christ in us doing what he can do. And we're not held to yesterday's performance because these mercies are new every morning. So my call to us is to desire to live in such a way that we can look back over our journey in the Lord and say, okay, it's not all terrible, but the parts that are terrible are covered in his grace and made new in his mercy. And what will happen is that our departures and our comings and goings will have deeper meaning. We see this in the text in verse 36. Paul, as we said, is giving his farewell talk. And in verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him. To the ship. This is the impact that we have on one another. We live openly, humbly, tenaciously on behalf of one another for God's glory, is that these affections are sincere. So I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer. I ask you to stand. We'll close our time in prayer before we lift our voices in, in song and just ask the Lord to keep these things near and dear to our hearts this week. Lord God. I do want to thank you, Lord, for the patience of your people. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. And I pray, Lord, that we can strive towards these things. Lord, we know that a a big part of the calling that we have in you is to work hard for you and for your glory. But help us, Lord, to do so from a motivation of your grace, knowing what you've done for us. Help us not to run the rat race of trying to impress you and trying to get you off our back and trying to maybe... um, Uh, spare ourselves some punishment or something like that. But Lord, just to be able to give you back in honor and glory what you rightly deserve. So thank you for your restoration.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.